0: Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees Gracious Father, we come before you now, and we want to have hearts that tremble at your word, because you esteem those that are humble and contrite and tremble at your word, that, that bow before your word and want to hear what you have to say. And so give us hearts like that this morning, and I pray that you would fill our hearts with a, a sight with the eyes of faith, of the glory of our King, Jesus. By your spirit and through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a Palm Sunday passage, Palm Sunday. Again, the week, right, the Sunday right before Easter. It's Christ's last entrance into Jerusalem. It's called Palm Sunday because of the palm branches that some of the crowd cut and put on the ground. And in Luke's account, it says they're actually waving the palm branches in the air. And this is the time Jesus enters Jerusalem again for the last time before he's crucified. And we're faced with an immensely important question from this text. A week before the resurrection, and as Jesus rides into the city, they're laying down palm branches, they're waving them in the air, and the city is shaken. I mean, it says that there's a crowd behind Jesus as he's riding on this, little don- this young donkey. There's a crowd before him. They're, they're shouting messianic scripture and texts. They're waving branches. They're putting branches on the ground. This is the, the, the whole city is stirred up as Jesus comes. In fact, verse 10 says the whole city is stirred. Uh, In fact, the 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 word stirred literally means to be shaken or quaking. There's this earthquake of excitement as Christ comes into the city. And the crowds that are caught up in this fervor of excitement, they ask this question Who is this? Who is this man? And that's the most important question ever, isn't it? Who is Jesus Christ? There are all sorts of things, all sorts of things you can get wrong in life. And one second after you're dead, it doesn't matter at all. You know what I'm saying? You can get certain strategies for investments or this or that. You can get lots of things wrong in life. It doesn't matter at all. You get this wrong and it matters matters eternally. Who is this? But this question is so important, and there's also ways that one can answer this question and answer it insufficiently. And I think that's the way the crowd answers. They give an answer, and it's a correct answer, but it's a massively insufficient answer. Right? The crowd asks, who is this? And the, the, those who are following Jesus and going before Jesus, they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's true enough, but there's so much more. And our text unfolds for us who this Jesus is. He is more glorious than you could ever imagine. He is greater, more gracious, more amazing than you could ever fathom. It says that all the depths In the riches of Christ, Paul sought to preach them. He says, I get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so finding out all of Christ in this life is just something we will never, ever do. And unfortunately, often we settle for a watered-down understanding of who Jesus is. So who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Well, our text tells us. This entire scene is fulfilling a prophecy spoken about 500 years prior to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Matthew, who's the author, of course, of the, of the, the gospel of Matthew, clues us in on, on this in verse 5 when he says, this is fulfilling the prophetic word, and then he quotes Zechariah 9.9, 9, which says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So God, through the prophet Zechariah, identifies who this man is riding on a donkey. And he says, say to the daughters of Zion, I love that, God speaking through Zechariah speaks to his people as his beloved children. Say to the daughters of Zion, behold your king. Behold your king. So who is this? Their king and our king. But it's this event and the way in which the kingship of Jesus is described that I think is so fascinating. And actually, it's so relevant for us still today. The kingship of Jesus is, you know, we can flatten it out and say, well, he's king. And okay, so, so he, if he's king, then we're his subjects and we just are supposed to obey him. And that's true enough. But we don't want to flatten it out. The the kingship of Christ is like this beautiful four-dimensional diamond in its beauty and perfection. And, And this passage unfolds for us, describing what Jesus is like as our king. And let me tell you, Jesus is the kind of king that his church needs. He's the kind of king that Ankeny needs, quite frankly. He's the kind of king that the world needs. He's the kind of king that you desperately need. And I would suggest that he is the kind of king that you truly long for, you and I both. So let's look at four ways Jesus is described as king from this text. All right, As we, as we consider, as we look forward to Resurrection Day next Sunday, let's look at four ways that Christ is described as our king. He's sovereign, he's triumphant, he's gentle, and he's gracious. He's sovereign, he's triumphant, he's gentle, he's gracious. First, he is sovereign. Jesus is our sovereign king. He is no mere man right? He he did not, when he became man, he didn't, he didn't become less than God. He is our sovereign king. He's not a proxy king. He's not a king in waiting. He is sovereign. Don't limit, and don't limit your understanding of sovereignty to your, what you think of in terms of a sovereign nation, right? The United States is a sovereign nation, or Mexico is a sovereign nation, or or uh, South Korea is a sovereign nation, don't limit it to that. It will severely limit your understanding of what it means that Jesus is our sovereign king. Here's what I mean. Jesus is our sovereign king, and we see it in our text, in the way that he understood his own identity, in the way that he fulfilled his purpose, and in his perfect timing. So first, in the way that he understood his identity, look how Jesus identifies himself in this passage. He refers to himself in verse 2 or 3 this way. He says, he sent two of his disciples into Bethphage, into this village. He says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. You're going to tell them that the Lord needs them. Jesus is identifying himself as the Lord. The Greek word translated Lord is kurios. And it's kind of a generic word that can be used for human lords and human masters, bosses, slave owners, and magistrates that are lords. But when it's applied to Jesus, it is a title reserved for God alone. Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2 says that he was given a name above every name. And it's not the name Jesus that's above every name. It's the name Lord that's above every name. He's given the name Lord. Jesus identifies himself as Lord. It's key, uh, the, the Hebrew counterpart for kurios is Adonai. Ever heard the word Adonai before? It reminds me of a song my dad always played. In, in the, it was t- a cassette player back then. Um, Amy, Amy, Grant. Amy Grant, yes. Adonai. Who remembers that song? I can't remember if it was Amy Grant or Sat, Pat, uh, uh, Sandy Patty. Or, I knew it was one of them. Adonai. I never knew what it meant. I just kind of liked the song. I'm going through a book now with my kids and I'm learning a lot. It's about the names of God. One of the names is Adonai. The word Adonai means that God is the sovereign owner of everything. Psalm 24 says the earth is Adonai's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell within it. Jesus is Adonai. Everything belongs to him. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. All the earth belongs to him. Think about this. The donkey he's riding on belongs to him. He owns it. All the cloaks they're laying on the ground, they're his. The ground that they're laying the cloaks on to keep the donkey's feet from being sullied with dirt, it belongs to Jesus. He's the Lord. And he identifies himself as the Lord. But also notice Christ's sense of purpose. Jesus is knowingly fulfilling prophecy here. It might seem like something rather insignificant, this errand that he sent the two disciples on, but the Lord Jesus knew the scriptures had to be fulfilled. In John chapter 8, I think Jesus says, the scriptures cannot be broken. And Jesus understood he was coming to fulfill the things that were written about him, that were spoken about him. He always does the will of his Father, he said. He loves to do the will of his Father. And so he is fulfilling this prophecy, this prophetic word that was spoken. I was thinking this last week. It exact, doesn't exactly apply to this text directly, but you know, God doesn't just speak things. He's not just a predictor. He's not a fortune teller. He's not a soothsayer. He doesn't predict things and then hope that they work out or try to orchestrate that, you know, maybe hopefully it works out in the end. He speaks things and then Jeremiah says, he watches over his word to accomplish it. And we see Christ doing that here. Christ is accomplishing the word of God, fulfilling his father's will. But also notice the timing. Why is Jesus coming now to Jerusalem? I mean, a right answer would be, well, it's the week leading up to Passover and he wants to be there for Passover to eat the Passover supper with his disciples and then offer himself up as the Passover lamb. That's true. But why not the year before or the year after? He's not just going with the flow. Jesus doesn't just go with the flow and just kind of float along. And No, he doesn't do that. There's this amazing verse in Luke chapter 9. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see this at different times. Wording kind of like this. But it says, when Jesus knew that his time to be lifted up was at hand, he set his face toward Jerusalem. The old King James says he set his face like flint. Like flint, right? I mean, he was steadfast. He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. It's time to make my way to Jerusalem. Jesus understood that it was now his time. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now is the time to be taken up. Now is the time to fulfill what was spoken of him, even the prophecy of Zechariah, And what may seem like a rather insignificant one about him riding into town on a donkey. It's not insignificant, but it might appear to be. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now is the time for Jesus to move toward the end goal for which he came to planet Earth, which was to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. And nothing would stop him. There's, other, there's this other place where uh, the, the religious authorities wanted to arrest Jesus. And it says it wasn't his time. So he walked through them untouched. Now's his time. Now's his time. He is our sovereign king. And we need a sovereign king. We need a king that has all power at his disposal. Number two, Jesus is a triumphant king. The gathered crowd recognizes Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. They seem to clearly recognize that he had claimed to be the Messiah, and they are treating him as such. In fact, they're treating him as though he were a king that had won a victory over his enemies, already won a victory. And they're given this this procession as as he approaches Jerusalem. In ancient times, the palm branch was a symbol of victory, during the Maccabean revolt against the Greeks, the Maccabees minted coins with a palm branch on it, signifying their victory over their enemies. Furthermore, the crowds, like the palm branches and the cloaks, it was like they were rolling out the red carpet for Christ. And it's no mistake that the people were shouting, Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, which is not so much a shout of praise, but rather a cry for help. Hosanna was a cry for help. It was a cry that literally, that that meant something along the lines of save me now, save us right now. And so this, this gathered crowd, they're celebrating the presence of the king. They're crying out for his saving help. But their expectations of Christ were all wrong, weren't they? They were looking for a particular kind of victory, namely salvation from the oppressive regime of Caesar. They were looking for a military figure to to march into Jerusalem and oust the Roman soldiers. They were looking for the glory days of the nation of Israel to be brought back like in the days of King David, and this was the son of David. So they say, he's coming. He's here. Obviously, that's not how Jesus came. And soon he would dash their hopes. Very soon. Uh, though it's, not, it's, it's almost certainly not the, the same exact crowd, it's probably also almost certain that there's overlap in the crowd, that those, some of those here hailing him king... In just a matter of days, we'll be crying out for him to be crucified. The joy and celebration uh, uh, that, that we see in this text is, is a kind of forecasting of what's to come in the events later in the week, on Good Friday and Easter. So though Jesus wouldn't ultimately fulfill their hopes and dreams, he did indeed come to triumph. And he did come to save. He came to conquer. And he came to conquer in a way that was more wonderful than the people that were caught up in this excitement could have ever imagined. He achieved for them a salvation they truly needed. Not the one that they wanted, but the one that they needed. And you and I need to think about this a little bit. See, we often, we sometimes have expectations of Christ that are misplaced as well. We too can have expectations somewhat like the Jewish people in Jerusalem did that were gathered for the Passover feast. False expectations of what Jesus ought to do for us now. You see, what you and I need most is not all of our temporary troubles and trials and pains removed. But we need all of our sins removed. As far as the east is from the west. Never to be brought up in judgment again. You know what I'm saying? That's what we need most. Because it is our sins. It is unforgiven sin. Even one. Even one unforgiven sin that will put you at odds with God forever. And it's not not the, uh, the abundant life of the American dream that we need for 80 years. It's the abundant life of heaven that we need forever. And so we want... We want to rejoice in and glory in what Christ has done for us as well. We want to understand not to put misplaced expectations on Jesus now as well. He is no doubt a conquering king, but he conquers in stages, doesn't he? And he conquered our greatest enemy at the cross and through his resurrection when he conquered our sin and when he conquered death. This is what Jesus has come to graciously give is the abundant life of eternal life with God forever and I would add this just a caveat and a thousand other temporary blessings but it's not it's not the other way around right? like the the thousand temporary blessings oh yeah and then we get heaven too okay great Cream on top, right? Whip cream on top. No, it's it's that, and then a thousand temporary blessings, and there are a thousand, ten thousand temporary blessings. C. S. Lewis put it this put it well, I think, when he said, Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That's good, isn't it? That's helpful. Now, let me be clear. We know how the biblical story ends too, don't we? There, this scene of Jesus riding on an animal into Jerusalem is not the last time the Bible shows him riding on an animal. Right? Our king will come again. And when he comes, he will be riding on a white horse to be the sovereign, unstoppable king of everything. Everything. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war and puts all of his enemies under his feet. And our great hope is that he will put that he will do this. This is our great hope. Jesus is not only our sovereign king, he is our triumphant king. Number three, Jesus is a humble and gentle king. I think this is, might be the most surprising thing for us to think about, especially when we consider his sovereignty and his might and triumph. Look at verse five again. It says, behold, your king is coming to you humble. Or if you have the NIV, maybe it says gentle. If you have the New American, New American Standard, I think it says gentle. He's humble and gentle. He's mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Not even a full-grown donkey, a young donkey. Imagine a presidential candidate, someone running for president, and they had a commercial, and he or she said, I'm going to govern with complete humility and gentleness. Think they'd get many votes? (laughs) I don't think so. Right? People want someone who's going to fight. Who's going to hit back and twice as hard. Jesus came humble, gentle, as a king. What if the same candidate showed up to a rally in a 1993 Ford Festiva (laughs) with one hubcap missing and desperately in need of a new uh, muffler? Impressive? Not so much. Not so much. Jesus isn't pressured to appear a certain way to meet certain expectations, clearly. The King of Kings is humble and gentle. Of course, he described himself this way. One of the most amazing invitations Jesus gives in the scriptures, it's in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Gentle. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You've never known someone so gentle. never known someone so gentle as Christ is. I was thinking about I was thinking about mothers, especially with one of their children who's hurting. And uh, well, I think about my own wife because I see this often. I think of Silas broke his arm a couple years ago, and uh, you know he we didn't see where he fell, we didn't see it happen, but he was he was wailing pretty hard, and and I just was like, he's going to be fine. Just come on, just suck it up, you know. And <laughs> and uh, and Alyssa's like, no, I think he, I mean she was caring for. I mean, thank, thankfully, right? I was I was in the wrong. I'm not saying that was a good response for me. Uh, the gentleness of a mother toward a hurting child. That's the gentleness. It's a a weak uh, way of describing the gentleness of Christ. That's the kind of gentleness Christ has for us. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It would be a great mistake to consider gentleness a sign of weakness. Far from it. In the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, the first eight verses of the chapter describe how God is going to destroy the enemies of Israel in judgment. And then it says, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king comes, gentle, Isaiah chapter 40 verses 10 and 11 puts the strength and gentleness of the Lord side by side in an unmistakable way. It says this, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. And then it says this, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He rules with might and he carries his children close to his heart with gentleness. We often overlook the gentleness of Christ and we shouldn't. It's a great mistake. It is a great mistake. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan from the 17th, 17th century, said, It is good for us always to remember the gentleness of Christ because Satan always presents him to the afflicted soul as a most severe judge armed with justice against us. Clearly, the manner in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem is meant to reveal his humility and his gentleness as well. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a battle steed, but on a beast of burden, a young donkey, and a borrowed one at that. He didn't didn't ride into Jerusalem proclaiming his own greatness. He came in quietly and lowly. I mean, the crowds were stirring things up, but Jesus wasn't calling attention to himself. He did not come arrayed for battle or shouting threats at his opponents, but he came in gentle and ready to let his opponents do whatever they wanted to do with him. That's how he came to Jerusalem. Jesus is a gentle king, and he rules us, as John Newton said, not with that rod of iron by which he bruises and breaks the powers of his enemies but with his golden scepter of love. Amen. That's how he rules his people. He is a gentle king. The humility of Christ that we see in our text as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a, on a young donkey is stunning, but it's actually not the climax of his acts of humility. The climax, actually, is Jesus not mounted on a donkey, but Jesus stripped and mounted on a cross. And think about this. Jesus chose it. He chose it. He did it. Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ is our Humble and gentle king. I would just, a little sidebar here. I, I would say those that think they've got things figured out don't care about this. But when you know yourself, and you know your weakness, and you feel the weight of your trials and difficulty, the weight of life, You need a sovereign and triumphant king, no doubt, but you need a gentle king as well. You need a king like this. Number four, Jesus is a gracious king. I love this phrase of the prophecy from Zechariah. Again, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, listen to this, your king is coming to you coming to you the king comes to you he doesn't call a, a large royal gathering and call I mean of course we do come to him but but this is a picture of him coming to us and isn't that the essence of grace is God coming to us Christ coming to us Christianity is not a religion of human effort and ingenuity, reaching out for God and by our willpower and diligence and intellect and wisdom finally getting to him or determination or sincerity. It is God condescending and coming to us. I'm reading a little kid's version of Pilgrim's Progress to Silas. And there's this great... Uh, if you've read the, the larger book, it, it, it kind of fills it out more. But there's this great part where, where uh, Pilgrim gets off track and he, he listens to some bad counsel. He's told to go to the city and find a man named Legality. Okay? And so... And he's going to help you. He's got lots of wisdom. His son or brother or son named Civility is a great guy too. And they'll help you out. And so Christian starts down the road toward Legality's house. And he says, and as it's narrating, as he came toward the town, he realized that the way to the town, you had to go up this really steep mountain. And as you got closer and closer and closer, it was so steep. And it looked like the mountain was going to fall on you. That is works, religion, trying to get to God. And it can feel so spiritual sometimes, but it kills. It's lifeless. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Your king comes to you. Don't say, I don't need him to come to me. I'll come to him. No, you need him to come to you. Your king comes to you. And Jesus is the kind of king that, that doesn't just give gifts, like he's going to give us something or things, but he gives us the greatest gift of all, namely himself. It says, say to the daughters of Zion, your king, behold your king, he comes to you. He gives us himself. And even this morning, he comes to us. He comes to us. I'm not sure why I used to say this, but almost every time I used to preach down at Bethel Mission uh, to a group of homeless men, I just preached the gospel to them. And I would, almost every time I would say, Jesus stands before you and comes to you tonight. I can say the same thing here. Jesus stands before us, and by his Spirit and through his word, he comes to us. He's a gracious king. You don't need to go looking for him. He's not the one that's lost, right? He comes to us. Jesus is our gracious king. He is sovereign, he is triumphant, he is gentle, he is gracious. This is true, and I believe it is. How should we live in response to him? How should we then live in response to him? I have three things. Maybe a fourth. We'll see. First, worship. Bow in humble worship. The victory of our great and gentle King does not ever. I mean, if we truly know it and experience it, it does not leave us feeling haughty and self-sufficient, but humble. It brings us low. Remember the wise men from the, the, the Christmas story. They come to Jesus. He's probably a toddler at the time they come and they travel some distance and and they don't, they don't know that much about him. They just the star came up, they, they, were, they were magicians and astrologers, and they followed it. It led them to the king of the Jews. And when they came into the house, what did they do? They fell down and worshiped him and poured out their treasures before him. They didn't know even close. To what we know of Christ, bow down and worship Him in adoring, loving worship. Making my way through the Narnia books with my younger three kids right now, and um, we just take we just when we have time. Sometimes we don't touch it for a couple weeks. Sometimes we read three nights a week. Just whatever the week holds for us, we're we're near the end of, I think it's the third book, uh, The Horse and His Boy. And it is actually called The Horse and His Boy, not not the other way around. Um, And it's about this young boy named Shasta. He's a runaway slave boy. And he finally makes it to Narnia. And he meets Aslan, this Christ-like lion. And listen to how it describes Shasta's response to Aslan. It is I read this the other night. I was almost in tears. It was, Anyways, maybe you will be too. Who knows? All right. You might, might not touch you the same way. It's powerful. It says, Shasta turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than a horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of the lion or else it could not see it. It was from the lion that this shining light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful, terrible and beautiful. Luckily, Shasta had lived all his life too far in the south to have heard the tales that were whispered about a dreadful Narnian demon that appeared in the form of a lion. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance... At the lion's face, Shasta slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he didn't need to say anything. How do we respond to a a king like this? By bowing in worship. Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Kiss the son, Worship your king. Number two, submit willingly and happily to his lordship. He is king. Jesus is king, and therefore he rules as king. But his rule is not a heavy-handed, tyrannical kind of rule through brute force at the end of a whip rather he rules by lovingly wooing us and winning our hearts and working patiently and gently in us and changing us from the inside out so that we have tender hearts that are made willing and happy in obedience to him isn't that that's so different isn't it then you better hearts that are changed Jesus is a king, and his kingdom is a kingdom of grace. And Romans 5 now tells us that grace is what reigns in our lives, the lives of Christians. And so we obey not in order to be accepted and loved by our king, but because we have already been accepted and already been loved by him. And because we love him in return and because we want to obey him out of our love for him. In a sermon on this text, John Newton, who wrote the great hymn Amazing Grace, I I quoted just a little bit of this earlier. Here's a larger excerpt from that sermon. He says this, Happy are these his subjects who dwell under his shadow. They're happy. He rules them not with that rod of iron which he bruises the nations with, But with his golden scepter of love. He reigns by his own right and by their full and free consent. So he reigns by right of being king, but also with the full and free consent of his people. In their hearts, he reigns upon a throne of grace to which they have at all times access and from where they receive, in answer to their prayers, Mercy and peace and pardon for all their sins. Grace to help in every time of need and a renewed supply answerable to all their wants, cares, and conflicts. This is our king. This is those who dwell under his lordship and kingship will dwell there happily and willingly. And so we are called to submit In such a way to Jesus, happily and willingly. And third, how should we respond to Jesus, our King? We should serve him with gentleness. We should serve him with gentleness. How does the victory of our sovereign and triumphant King work out in our lives? It's so strange, but it's wonderful. It doesn't make us triumphalistic. It doesn't. It makes us lowly and gentle. It makes us gentle. In fact, I would say it's the triumphalism that's native to our natural hearts that make us harsh and rough and overly opinionated. That's what needs to be defeated by Christ. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Or we might say gentleness is the fruit of the reign of Jesus in our life of King Jesus, ruling and reigning in our hearts. And so we serve him with gentleness and we turn outward and and love one another and serve one another with gentleness. If Christ has treated us in such a manner, How hypocritical for us to turn outward to those made in his image and saved and and treated gently by Christ in the same way that we have been and treat them harshly and rough and exalt ourselves over them. Remember, Jesus, our king, did not ride into town on a high horse, but on a gentle, excuse me, but our gentle king rode on a young donkey. And so Paul says, that as we look to our Savior, we are to let our gentle spirit be known to all. Amen. Let your gentle spirit be known to all. And I, Can I just suggest something? Start with those closest to you. Don't worry about the all everywhere else if those closest to you still get the rough and tough treatment. okay. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all. I realize that this appears weak to the world, but God's weakness is stronger than men. Amen? God's weakness is stronger than the strength of men. And we must always remember that it's the foolish, weak message of the cross. The message of our king riding into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey in order to walk up the hill of Calvary wearing a crown of thorns and die on a cross for his enemies. It's the most foolish and weak message the world has ever heard. But this is the salvation of the world. This is the hope of the world. This is the the victory that the world needs. And so as we receive our sovereign, triumphant, gentle, gracious king, we are to serve him with gentleness. And serving him it means serving one another with his gentleness.